Europe is having a ton of trouble with its Turkish immigrants. In the old days, of course, Europeans used to do battle with the Turks because the Turks were trying to conquer Western civilization. Nowadays, Europeans actually invite Turks to sweep into their countries in droves because things have changed. The Turks are still trying to conquer Western civilization, but Europeans are now weak and stupid. The latest troubles began when Turkey tried to get Turks in Europe to support a Turkish referendum that would give dictatorial powers to Turkey's president, Recep Erdogan, pronounced Erdogan because the G is silent, as in angster. Until recently, Turkey had been slowly modernizing because of the secularizing reforms instituted last century by Mustafa Kemal. Kemal is usually known as Ataturk because of all the people shouting, Ataturk, you instituted secularizing reforms. Unfortunately, these reforms have been gradually eroded by President Erdogan, pronounced Erdogan, because the G is silent, as in whiz. How come you're eroding all those great reforms? The Turks tried to gin up support for the president's most recent power grab by staging rallies in European countries. But the Europeans shut down the rallies because they were afraid they would lead to riots and threats of holy war. To prove these concerns were unfounded, the Turks rioted and threatened holy war. The Europeans put down the riots, which angered President Erdogan, which is pronounced Erdogan because the G is silent, as in hottest. The Turkish president accused the Europeans of being Nazis, which the Europeans generally don't like because some of them actually used to be Nazis, but are now pretty nice. What's more, Turkish hackers spread the Nazi accusation by hacking them into very important Twitter accounts, like those of Justin Bieber, Amnesty International, Forbes magazine, and myself, which made me feel like a very important person who was accusing the Europeans of being Nazis, even though they're now pretty nice. Geert Wilders, a hardline anti-Islamist with amazingly gigantic hair, hoped that he would ride the Turkish troubles to election as the Dutch prime minister. Wilders had promised to de-Islamize the Netherlands, but his election bid was rejected because the Dutch apparently preferred to Islamize, and also the big hair was considered a negative. All the same, the Europeans do finally seem to be debating whether letting Islamists sweep over their countries, rape their women, kill their men, and destroy their culture is really as good an idea as it sounded when they first thought of it. On the one hand, the EU recently enacted a ban on headscarves in the workplace, feeling Muslim women should be treated fairly at work before returning home to be chattel again. On the other hand, Germany's Angela Merkel recently bowed to Erdogan's request that a German comedian be prosecuted for insulting the Turkish president. Personally, I'd have told Erdogan to et stuffed. The G is silent. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. Life is tickety-boo Birds are winging, also singing Hunky-dunky-dee-doo Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy The world is a bitty zing It's a wonderful day, hooray, hooray It makes me want to sing Oh, hurrah, hooray Oh, hooray, hooray all right, it's uh, Monday. We're back along. That was a brutal, brutal Clavenless weekend. All these classic people were dying. Chuck Berry, Jimmy Breslin, great Daily News uh, columnist, uh, Derek Walcott, good novelist, good poet and novelist. A uh, lot of a uh, lot of people gone, but uh, that's the, now we're back and we'll bring them all back to life. So it's it's okay. And we have we have best-selling cultural correspondent Michael Knowles is with us to discuss the. Uh, 
entertainments that came out from the left and right. Knowles, of course, his book, brilliant book, Reasons to Vote for Democrats, is now number three on Amazon, despite or possibly because of the fact that it has no words inside. Now, uh, and we are giving this away, are we not? If you subscribe for the year, you got to have an annual subscription, just a lousy eight bucks a month for a year, and we will send you a free copy of this book. And if we run out of this, we'll just send you a ream of paper. Uh, now, now, you know, you've noticed that the, you've noticed the quality of workers we have here, and you've probably said to yourself, how can I stop that from happening to my company? Well, <laughs> the answer is don't just go to the nearest prison or mental institution, but go to ZipRecruiter.com. <clears throat> ZipRecruiter.com is the perfect way to find people because you can go on all the important job sites at once. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 200 plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all <clears throat> pardon me, with a single click. You can find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. And this way, you don't have to juggle emails or calls to your office. You can quickly screen the candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses, and why we here at The Daily Wire often sit up late at night weeping into our beds that we didn't use ZipRecruiter.com when we brought this motley crew on to run our shows. Right now, my listeners can post great jobs at ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. If you're not smart enough to use ZipRecruiter.com for free, you're probably not in a position to hire anyone anyway. <laughs> so go ahead and try it. It's got to be better than what's going on here. All right. So I was gone for, I was gone for the National Review Summit. That's why so many people died over the, uh, the Clavenless weekend. This was the National Review Ideas Summit where all these important people and me were there. You know, I, I walked on, as I walked on stage, Tom Price, the new health uh, and what's it, health secretary, was walking off. And as I walked off, uh, Paul Ryan was walking on. And I thought, like, what, what was I doing there? You know, like, I don't, I don't know anything. But it was really good. I like to, I like to go there. It reminded me, it made me think back on another, I, I go to these National Re Review things and I was on one of their cruises and I was on a panel on one of the cruises and John Miller, a pal of mine, who's now a professor at Hillsdale, said, asked the panel in, in general, what did we think, how did we think history would record Barack Obama? And everybody had a kind of elaborate thing what history would say about Barack Obama. And I said, I thought that Barack Obama would get one sentence in history for a while, that he was the first black president. And then after that became unimportant, he would have no place in history whatsoever. I mean, he would be like Millard Fillmore or like, you know, Martin Van Buren or something like this. I now believe that to be that I got that exactly right. Now, of course, I always get these things exactly right. For those of you who are leaving comments saying that I'm wrong, you know, it, it, it'll save you so much groveling later on if you don't, don't say that stuff. Because I, but I really do think Obama is already, he's like a, a kind of vague memory. Like I can barely remember what's going on. And it makes me realize that these eight years of Obama were like a dream. They were like a dream that the left was having out loud of this salvific black president who was 
going to lift us all and everything was going to be different. And now we were going to be, let's give him the Nobel Peace Prize because now, give him the Nobel Peace Prize before he does anything because now everything will be peace. And in fact, it's been the long, it was the longest period of war under any president ever. The fewest number of, uh, legis- of laws passed any president ever. Now everything he's doing is being erased one way or another by Donald Trump. The, his party has been destroyed. And I just don't think he's going to make, have left much of a mark uh, except on the minds of these people who imagined it. And so now we have Donald Trump. And, you know, there's this old saying, nobody knows exactly who said it, that the news is the rough first draft of history. But really now the news is an alternative history. It's like reading science fiction. It's like reading a world. So here's we're entering this big week. This is a big week for the Trump administration. Neil Gorsuch, Supreme Court guy, his hearings begin. The health care law is supposed to come up for a vote uh, as early as Thursday. It has one more committee to get through. And uh, that, that comes up for a vote. Now there are all these investigations. These are going on as I speak. So stuff is probably happening as I speak that I'm not watching. But the intel investigations into uh, Russia, you know, on Russia's influence on the election and Trump's accusations that Obama wiretapped him and all this stuff. So here's a piece from the Wall Street Journal this morning. I'm just going to read like a little bit of it that is giving it gives the general impression that the press is giving us about this administration. Since President Donald Trump's election, equity and bond markets have been on the rise. Business leaders are applauding his call for tax cuts and consumer confidence in the U.S. economy is up. It's actually way up. But halfway through his crucial but. Here's the but. Halfway through his crucial first hundred days in office, it has been tough going for the new president's agenda that inspired much of that optimism. So people are optimistic, but the agenda is in trouble. Republican infighting is bogging down a health care bill and the litany of legislative issues lined up behind it, including an overhaul of the tax code. A series of court rulings are stalling his immigration policy changes and his own tweets and White House comments are broadening several probes into whether Russia tried to influence the outcome of last year's presidential election on behalf of the Trump campaign. So let's take a look at this for a minute. The one part that I immediately agreed with to some degree is that a series of court rulings stalled his immigration executive orders, not necessarily his immigration policy changes, because one of the things about those executive orders is they're kind of irrelevant. Like he doesn't need to do that stuff. There's so much he can do by just calling up ICE and saying enforce the law that would change everything. But it is true that these judges who have struck down this latest executive order have betrayed their trust. And I mean, it's getting on the right. People get a little bit. uh, What's the word? Uh, Hyperbolic, maybe they, you know, people shouting, it's a coup. It's a left wing judicial coup. It's a couple of bad decisions by a couple of dishonest judges, you know, they're maybe not corrupt, but they're ideologically corrupt. And that stuff tends to to rebound. It tends to blow up in your face. So I'm not really as concerned about that. I think that's going to make these judges look bad and it may even end with the Ninth Circuit being disbanded or, or rearranged in some way. So, you know, I'm not that worried about this, but let's let's talk about, the, for instance, well, first, since it's happening now, let's talk about these hearings. Okay. The hearings about Russia, it seems pretty clear now that there that there is no evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. They keep saying Russia hacked the election. So far, all that boils down to is Russia phishing John Podesta and releasing some emails and all this stuff. So that that is just now a lot of, uh, you know, 
kind of slander, just people saying this stuff about Russia. So that's going to kind of disappear, I think, over time. It just, if they had anything, we would know it by now. It would be a big scandal. This is a lot of journalists making a lot of noise about something that does not seem to have actually happened. I mean, I do not believe, first of all, I don't believe that Putin could have possibly known that Trump was going to win. No one knew that Trump was going to win. He was looking for information against the person he thought was going to be the president. He was looking to discredit Hillary Clinton because he thought she was going to be the president. Now there is this stuff about the Trump tweets that Obama bugged him. Okay, and so today here's the latest thing we have is James Comey being questioned by Adam Schiff, a partisan uh, Republican, a partisan Democrat on the Intel Committee. And Schiff is asking him about these allegations that Obama bugged Trump. And here's Comey. Director Comey, uh, I want to begin by attempting to put to rest several claims made by the president about his predecessor, namely that President Obama wiretapped his phones. So that we can be precise, I want to refer you to exactly what the president said and ask you whether there is any truth to it. First, the president claimed, quote, terrible. Just found out that Obama had my wires tapped in Trump Tower just before the victory. Nothing found. This is McCarthyism, unquote. Director Comey, was the president's statement that Obama had his wires tapped in Trump Tower a true statement? With respect to the president's tweets about alleged wiretapping directed at him by the prior administration, I have no information that supports those tweets, and we have looked carefully inside the FBI. The Department of Justice has asked me to share with you that the answer is the same for the Department of Justice and all its components. The department has no information that supports those tweets. So this is no big surprise, right? We knew, we had already said in the Republican on the Intel Committee, Devin Nunes, he also said uh, the same thing. But here's what I think obviously did happen. And I, I say obviously, I'm putting this together a little bit, but it seems to me that, that the narrative is pretty clear that what did happen is there were legal taps on foreign actors like the Russian ambassador that some of these actors, as these people do, you know, there's nothing illegal or wrong about it. Some of them talk to people in the Trump campaign. I think Obama decided that he was going to create this narrative. Maybe he believed the narrative. I don't, I don't know. He picked this stuff out. He cherry picked the stuff where legally tapped Russians spoke legally to, you know, people in the Trump campaign. He then changed the rules of who had this information just before he left office so that it was spread around. And someone along, somewhere along the line, the names were unmasked. You're supposed to mask any American who gets swept up in these intelligence bugs. You know, you're supposed to not release who the guy was talking to because he's an American citizen. You have to get a warrant to tap his phone. Right. So you're supposed to. But obviously with Michael Flynn and possibly with others, that didn't happen. And that's where the criminal scandal really lies, because essentially Okay, you know, to say he tapped the phones, it's not true. And and Trump is a loud mouth and he talks. He's a loose talker and he talks the way people talk when they're in bars rather than the way you talk when you're in the Oval Office. And that's one of the problems with his tweets. It's his own fault. He's distracting from his agenda. It is true. He is. But I do not think it's criminal on Trump's part. I have to stop and say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. We have the great and powerful Michael Knowles, who we only we only get here by, you know, we have to pay him now to come on. We haven't started paying Knowles. Oh. Thank God. All right. But we have him coming on. Come over to thedailywire.com. You can hear the rest of the show or you could subscribe and you could watch it right on the site straight through.
So Rand Paul makes the point that even though, like I said, Trump's a loose talker and a, he's got a big mouth on those tweets that he really, I don't think at this point is helping himself. You know, he, Trump has said that without Twitter, he wouldn't have been elected. It was Twitter that helped him get elected. And all the time he was tweeting, people were saying, stop tweeting. So I think that it, I can understand why he doesn't want to listen to people. I think he should stop tweeting some of this stuff. I mean, even as this, even as these, these hearings are going on, he's tweeting stuff and he's not quite getting it right. He's kind of distorting what people are saying. And I just think he ought to, you know, he ought to dial it back. But Rand Paul made the point over the weekend that the real crime here is the release of the name of at least Michael Flynn and maybe others and whoever did that should be prosecuted. We know one thing for sure, that uh, the Obama administration did spy on Flynn. Now, whether it was direct or indirect, somebody was reading and, and taking a, con a, a transcript of his phone calls, and then they released it. It is very, very important that whoever released that go to jail, because you cannot have members of the intelligence community listening to the most private and highly classified information and then releasing that to the New York Times. There can only be a certain handful of people who did that. I would bring them all in, they would have to take lie detector tests, and I would say, including the political people, because some political people knew about this as well. But uh, we need to get to the bottom of who is releasing these highly classified conversations. And if the president was surveilled, he probably wasn't the target. I don't know that he was or wasn't, but if he was, they probably targeted someone in a foreign government, but then they listened to the conversation with Americans. But our government's talking to foreigners all the time. We can't allow people in the Intelligence Committee to release release the contents of that information to the media. So someone in the Obama administration, probably with the tacit approval of Mr. the former uh, President O, you know, was actually, it's not tapping the guy's phone, but is using taps of, of Trump Tower phones to damage a campaign, which is Okay, it's not quite as bad, but it's a thin, thin line, and it is criminal, and it's the only criminal action we know about. So this kind of idea that, oh, bad week for Trump because he tweeted this, but this is the case, eh, not so much. And this thing about the health care law is utter garbage. I mean, really, the health care law is doing what laws do. You know, you forget Kim Strassel had this great column where she said the newspapers have run out of synonyms writing about the health care law for division, disunity, discord, conflict, struggle, mess, right? This is the way laws are made. This is the sausage factory. You know, we forget this because for eight years, Obama sat in the White House signing executive orders and never passed any laws. This is the way laws are made. People are arguing the thing is getting better. Here, here's Paul Ryan. The, play the first Paul Ryan cut, number one, uh, just basically saying that it looks like it's going to come up on Thursday and he thinks it'll win in the House. We feel very good where we are. We're still having conversations with our members. We're making fine-tuning improvements to the bill to reflect people's concerns, to reflect people's improvements. Uh, the president, you say people are being at the seat at the table. Uh, the president is being, bringing people to his table, and I'm very impressive with how the president is helping us close this bill, making the improvements that we've been making, getting the votes, and so we feel very good where we are. We like the process because it's the regular order process. We're going to make those changes at the Rules Committee that the Budget Committee and others have asked for, and so we we feel like we're on track and we're doing we're right where we want to be. So what would you say are the prospects that you have the votes and we'll be able to pass it on Thursday? 
Yeah, I feel very good about it, actually. I feel like it's exactly where we want to be. And the reason I feel so good about this is because the president has become a great closer. Uh, he is the one who has helped to negotiate this bill with members from all over our caucus. I call it getting the sweet spot. You've got to get 218 Republicans who come from all different walks of life to come together to agree on the best possible plan to repeal and replace Obamacare. And the reason I feel very good where we are we all, all of us, all Republicans in the House, Senate, and the President made a promise to the American people that we would repeal and replace this faulty, collapsing law, and we're going to make good on that promise. I got to say, I know conservatives are still cranking about this bill, and I know you don't get everything you want. The House cannot pass a law that makes it seven years ago. They can't pass a law that sends us back in time, and that's an unfortunate thing because it would be nice if we could clear this out. Although there's so much, the, the health care system is in so much mess. It's way before Obamacare, the government was messing it up. But, you know, if you remember that CBO report, right, the Congressional Budget Office, if that is like half true, it cuts the budget by $337 billion over 10 years, right? It it cuts taxes by nearly $900 billion. It cuts spending by $1.2 trillion. It is the biggest reform of Medicaid of any uh, entitlement program in 30 years. I mean, smile, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's like it ain't bad. And, you know, they're still fighting over it. They're still having it. But this is the way laws get made. And so what I'm what I'm saying is in the same way that the Obama administration, as it was told by the press, was completely a daydream. It was a complete daydream during which not much was accomplished. Bad stuff happened in the Middle East. This stupid Obamacare law was a mess. The guy was an incompetent. He was an ideologue and he was an incompetent. He didn't govern well. He didn't deal with his opposition in the Congress well. The Congress just became a complete party of no, as it had to be, I think, given who uh, their their base was. You know, nothing much happened for eight years. Obama was not an important president. And in the same way, I think it is really early. If we come out of this week or the next two weeks, say, with a Neil Gorsuch confirmation, with this health care bill moving forward, with, you know, this these investigations, which are eventually going to turn to smoke and disappear, I think, and blow away, you know, this administration is going to have been accomplished quite a lot. And I think, you know, what we there is this open question. Look, what I'm saying right now is conservatives should be dancing on in the streets. Conservatives should be like doing the happy dance because we're getting a lot of stuff we did not think we would ever see again. Are we getting everything we want? No, because this is the world. You know, we're living in reality. We're not getting everything, but we're getting a lot. There's still questions about Trump, about his personality, about his character. I get it. All that stuff. But. But in terms of what is actually happening, it's pretty good. Let's talk to Michael Knowles. Knowles, your book, number three. Hey, drop it three. Come on, three. Just like. <laughs> and you know the shack is now beating me. I am oh, so. Come that's, on. that's what the really formed like... my opinion about the movie. <laughs> that and that it was a terrible movie. So you you went and saw the shack. I did. I went and saw. I saw a few movies this weekend. Okay. Uh, after uh, I was so distraught because after ten days at number one, reasons to vote for Democrats is now number three worldwide. Well, so see if you put some words in it, I maybe. Know. You know, <laughs> I could have kept this going another week or two. Um, we so I did go. This week, I thought, because I was reading the uh, media reports, that Beauty and the Beast was going to be some outrageously left-wing. Yeah, that's what they said. And it has the exclusively gay moment is right. what they talk about. So I went to see it, looking forward to hating it. I thought it would make, make it really easy to talk about today. This is about as close as an exclusively gay moment as you get. Do we have a cut from Beauty and the Beast? Oh, <laughs> 
You get the idea. So, yes, Beauty and the Beast is an exclusively gay movie. That is true. It's, it's a musical, right? It's a it's musical a comedy from Disney. Right. Um, I guess they've made the character of LeFou a little bit... Uh, Faye. Faye, yeah, yeah. foppish. Um, ironically, though... They they really went in for it. I mean, they did they they didn't go the Will and Grace route. They they made him into like a 1950s caricature of a gay uh-huh, man. Uh-huh, so yeah. he, he makes uh, Paul Lind look like John Wayne. I mean, this guy <laughs> they leaned into the light and the loafers part of things. Yeah. Um, the uh, and, and I suppose there are a couple other moments I won't ruin the movie, but. All in all, it was a very enjoyable experience. You know, there are some some criticisms to make of the movie, but uh, it looked pretty good. And my my daughter, who's a big Disney fan, she loved it. I mean, what about the whole feminist angle? Because what's her name? What, what's her, the star? That hot little English. The tomato. hot little English tomato. Oh, yeah. I forget her name. Yeah, Hermione. Yeah, so, I don't know. Emma Watson. Emma, <laughs> Emma Watson. Watson. Right. Yeah. So they said, oh, it's going to be a, a feminist film. Was it more feminist than? I guess they tried to. They're, <laughs> luckily, they're constrained yeah. because the the movie. It is just a good musical. It, it, they're constrained by the institution of this musical and the songs and the story. So they tried to make her a bit more feminist. All right, you know, it didn't didn't it's, bother me too much. It's kind of dopey because the entire story is about the fact that women transform men, form men from beasts into princes. That's basically what it is, which That's is not a feminist message. There's no way you can spin that, really. You know? That is that yeah. is exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I walked out of that movie very disappointed at having enjoyed it. <laughs> and I decided uh, I was going to compare two movies, Bad Art on the left and Bad Art on the right. right. So we'll move on to Bad Art on the right. Okay, what, the, what, what have we done? Yeah. You made me see The Shack. I did make you see The Shack. I can never forget you. But only because I don't like you. That's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> personal animus completely, yeah. That movie was so bad. I, I can't, I, I don't even know how to describe how bad it was. Do we have a cut of the preview? Mackenzie Allen Phillips. I've been looking forward to this. Do I know you? Not very well, but we can work on that. He's still having a hard time believing this is real. Why did you bring me here? There's no easy answer that'll take your pain away. Where were you when I needed you? I never left you. So she's. So wait. So we have to explain. We have to explain that she is God, right? This is a guy who's lost his child, and he gets a note saying, "Come to the shack," and he meets God. Isn't that? I've had a lot of tr- images in my mind of the divine, <laughs> infinite logos. Octavia Spencer is not one of those. <laughs> she gave a good performance with what she could with yeah. this absolute twaddle of a script that they had it there. Yeah. But it, it is. It is the worst of uh, bad conservative art because it is so sentimental, it is so saccharine, and it just clubs you over the head with a message. Yeah. It, it misses the, the art form entirely. We do this on the right sometimes. Yes. We do this, and yeah. it, it just reminds me that at their worst, conservatives are Philistines, and at their worst, <laughs> leftists are children. You know, I mean, they're just absolute children. The, uh, the, the movie I saw on the left was uh, this... Amy Schumer oh, leather special. I, I have oh, seen. God. I have seen a goodly part of that. That I mean, I, I want to say before you talk about this for me. Yes. I want to say that I am not one of these people who do, dismisses people who disagree with. I think Sean Penn is a great actor, even yeah. though he's a communist. I Absolutely. Think, uh, Amy Schumer has done some funny stuff. I like Trainwreck. I thought mm-hmm. that was cute. She does. Some, she has the show Inside Amy Schumer, which had some cute skits. 
So I'm not just because she was complaining because it got one. It's got one star in reviews, and she was yeah. complaining it was the alt right, and obviously I despise the alt the alt right. This is laugh free. I mean, it is. It's sans laughter. The, the closest yeah. thing I came to laughing is she pointed out that she looks a little bit like a college softball player, which yes, is, that, which that, is that, basically. That, yeah, yeah. It, but every single mm. joke, I mean, every joke is about some orifice of her lower that, body. That is true. And yeah. it's so, I mean, look, I, I'm not uh, prudish or overly yeah. judgmental in a comedy show. If you if you want some of like potty humor, that's fine. I guess you can sprinkle it in. But this was every single joke. And one was less funny than the next. Uh, it, it, I think the premise that they have is that a woman is going to say crude male humor, right. and that is going to be subversive and uh, therefore funny. But first of all, it, it isn't funny when men do it. You don't, <laughs> and right. men don't really even make these jokes a lot. Yeah, and uh, and it isn't subversive. It's the it's the dominant culture. So. It really fell flat. I mean, she just basically told one bad fart joke after another, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, and and it is too bad because she's done other other pretty good work before. But there but. was something wrong with this. There was something almost like pathological about it. I thought it was like hammering, hammering, hammering the most grotesque version of sex, the most grotesque version of you know going to the bathroom, all this stuff. And 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 again, I'm the same way. I could, I have a big raunch tolerance. I have a high tolerance yeah. for raunch. But it's got to be funny, you know. You got to really. It's got to. You've got to be, do something new. I saw Robin Williams once do a raunch show that had me in stitches. Yeah. I mean, it was just really funny. And, and there's something. there was something wrong with her. I mean, I just thought, I, I mean, I, I don't have a lot of patience with this idea that it's, it is somehow empowering for women to act like the worst of men. Right, Like right. the kind of man that I wouldn't want to know anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, why is that empowering for a woman to be like that? I mean, if, they, if women said we want to act more like polite gentlemen, <laughs> I might think, okay. Well, right, you know, I'll see how that goes. Yeah, see how that works out for you. But you like, know, the, yeah. the best part of the show was in the middle. She goes on a sort of bizarre moral rant about gun control, which was, there weren't even jokes in there. I mean, it was, she yeah. was just ranting about how we need to have gun control. And it, it made it clear to me that bo- bad art is didactic and politically didactic, uh, but the, the forms are just very different. I mean, it seems that the left wing and Amy Schumer falls into this yep. didactic grotesque and the right falls into this saccharine sentimentality. And certainly neither serve the art forms, but also neither serve their political and uh, moral narratives that they're trying to convey either. No, it's not only talking, you're absolutely right, it's not only talking to the choir, it is alienating even the choir. That's right. We are the choir, we would go with them. But they, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, thank you very much. Really interesting stuff, and I, uh, I would apologize for making you uh, watch The Shack, but it made me laugh. See, it made me yeah. laugh that you were watching The Shack. Well, that's I was, all that matters. <laughs> I, was sitting, I was sitting having a drink thinking, no one's just watching The Shack. Guy, guy puts an empty book on the bestseller list. You deserved every minute. All right. Do I, do I get the Presidential Medal of Freedom now, though? Is that? <laughs> yes, you do. Maybe we'll You see. absolutely do. That's, <laughs> it was a heroic. All right. Uh, stuff I like. Uh, first, before I, well, part of stuff I like, I have to talk about the Polly's. Political consultants gave awards for the best advertising and my friends at Madison McQueen, Mad Mac, Owen Brennan and the boys, Justin Folk, all of those folks who I love over there, they cleaned up. They cleaned up. They won the gold award for best use of humor for Damn, It Feels Good to Be a Clinton, which was uh, part of the Cruise for President campaign. Uh, Best use of negative uh, or contrast advertising. They won the silver and the bronze. They won the silver for best use of humor in broadcast uh, uh, advertising. Madison McQueen, congratulations. That's great stuff. 
All right, now let's talk about somebody a little more important than Madison McQueen, namely uh, Shakespeare. Uh, we're going <laughs> to talk about Shakespeare. I want to talk about Shakespeare a little bit because there was a, a book a few years back called Will in the World by Stephen Greenblatt, one of the foremost Shakespeare scholars in the world. And I thought the book was just absolutely delightful. If you've never read Will in the World, it's a delightful book about what Shakespeare's world looked like. But weirdly, and Greenblatt, I think he's at Harvard. I mean, he's like a big deal. Every time he would read the plays, I thought, like, that's not what's in the play. I mean, really just very, very overt mistakes. And one of his big things is that Shakespeare, and this this um, academics have been saying for decades now, that Shakespeare is among the most secular writers. Although Greenblatt speculates that he might have been a Catholic. He might have been a Catholic trying to, you know, keep it down because of all the, you know, you never knew when you were going to get burned at the stake for being a Catholic. Or, and then the next week it was the Protestants being burned at the stake. So, you know, he, he had to keep it down. And I really believe that because Shakespeare, I do think Shakespeare was a Catholic. And I think because he had certain opinions that he couldn't safely put into his plays, he came up with a brilliant strategy that made him William Shakespeare, which was that he simply wrote the moral world that Christianity posits, that not all religions posit, but Christianity does. And if you take a look at his plays, you are constantly finding the, the Christian world without, I think he mentions the Gospels once in all his plays, and only uh, Macbeth, I think, makes some derisive comment about the Gospels. But the world that Shakespeare writes about did not exist. You know, for instance, villains. I don't think there is a villain, as we think of a villain, like Hannibal Lecter, until Shakespeare. If you go back to the classics, the classic plays, there are people like Medea who do terrible things, but there's nobody who says, I am going to be evil. Shakespeare's supposedly earliest play, I think, is Titus Andronicus, and it has this Moor in it, Aaron the Moor, who's just bad. He basically just says, if I ever did anything good, I am sorry. I am sorry. And of course, his classic villain is is Richard III. And Richard III makes this incredible speech at the opening of his play. He kills his way to the throne, right? And Richard III just murders his and seduces his way to the throne. And and here, here is his a little bit of his opening speech in which he starts out by saying, basically, men have two, the world has two phases. It has war and it has love. And now the wars are over and it's time for love. But Richard III has a humpback and he's deformed. And so love is no good for him. And that's what he's saying. But I, that I'm not shaped for sportive tricks, nor made to court an amorous looking glass, I, that I'm rudely stamped and want love's majesty to strut before a wanton ambling nymph, I. That I'm curtailed of this fair proportion, cheated of feature by dissembling nature, deformed, unfinished, sent before my time into this breathing world, scarce half made up, and that so lamely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me as I halt by them. Why I, in this weak, piping time of peace have no delight to pass away the time unless to spy my shadow in the sun and descant on mine own deformity and therefore since i cannot prove a lover to entertain these fair well-spoken days i am determined to prove a villain 
So that's pretty sound psychology. I mean, pretty sound. He's can't he can't be a lover, so he's got all this kind of sexual pent up energy that would usually be that had been expelled in war, but now it can't be expelled in war. So he's going to expel it, murdering his way to the throne. He's determined to be to prove a villain, and and that is like that doesn't exist before Shakespeare that I can think of. Now maybe you can pop one at you can find a, an example that would prove me wrong, but it would be it would be an example that sort of prove it would be the exception that sort of proves the rule because Shakespeare invents this character who now becomes what we think of as a villain, a guy who knows right, he knows wrong. He's not saying that there is no right and wrong. He's saying there is such a thing and I choose this. And the effect of that in a Christian world would be to warp the moral law. It would be to warp the moral universe and therefore there would be a reaction. See, this is the whole thing that guys like Nietzsche and all, and the left today tell us there is no moral universe. There is no objective morality. It's just the narrative. Whoever tells the, whoever has the power tells the narrative. That's what makes for right and wrong. And the Christian says, no, there is a moral universe. It is God's universe. And when you push against it, when you break that moral law, there are consequences. By the end of the play, Richard III is lying in a tent waiting for the final battle at which we know he's going to be killed and all the people that he murdered he's murdered come back to him as ghosts and they say despair and die they command him to despair and die and he wakes up from this and here's the speech i couldn't find a version of the speech that made it clear what he was saying and he wakes up and he says i love myself Wherefore, why? Why do I love myself? For any good that I myself have done unto myself? Oh no, alas, I rather hate myself for hateful deeds committed by myself. So he's saying he's, he's divided now. He's divided into two people, right? He's, he's divided into the person essentially that he should have been and the person that he is. He says, I am a villain, yet I lie. I am not. Fool of thyself, speak well. And then he says, fool, do not flatter. He's, he's, torn, he's torn himself apart. He's torn himself between the man he was made to be, which God made him to be, and the man he decided, determined to become. He says, my conscience hath a thousand several tongues, and every tongue brings in a several tale, and every tale condemns me for a villain. That's what he said he wanted to be, right? He said, I'm determined to prove a villain. And he says... He says, all several sins, all used in each degree, throng to the bar, crying all, guilty, guilty. I shall despair. There is no creature loves me. And if I die, no soul shall pity me. Nay, wherefore should they, since that I myself find in myself no pity to myself? So it's an amazingly... You know, it just is a character who did not exist before the Christian understanding of morality. And because of the Christian understanding of morality, it requires psychology. It essentially, he's inventing, Shakespeare is inventing psychology in order to explain why people go wrong in Christian morality. There's nothing in here that Sigmund Freud, who always said, Sigmund Freud always said that he didn't make up what he did. The, the great writers had already made it up and he was just explaining it. And I'm not a Freudian, I'm not a Freudian, but much of what Freud said, there was much truth in what Freud said. So he's inventing psychology to explain the fact, the mechanism by which people violate the moral law. That is a thoroughly modern vision, but it's a, a vision that comes only out of a thorough understanding of the Christian truth of morality and the Christian life and the Christian uh, reaction of sin, the reaction of sin, that it divides you from yourself. It divides you from the self you were meant to be. 
More on Shakespeare as the week goes on. The Clavenless, long, long Clavenless weekend filled with death and destruction is over. Now there will be joy throughout the land. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. We'll see you again tomorrow.